Hey everybody, welcome back to Experience by Design podcast, where we explore experience designs of all kinds. I'm Gary David, handling the intro duties for this episode. What a difference a week makes, right? Or two weeks, or three weeks. If you think back to where you were and what you were doing even a month ago, it might seem like another lifetime. It was when this weird new virus that we didn't know what it was called was being talked about only a little bit in the news, if at all. And it seemed really far off at this distant land called Wuhan. It feels like a whole lifetime ago, and that sense of lost footing underlines the suddenness with which it all seems to have happened. You know, problems always seem less significant when happening somewhere else to someone else. We might feel badly about what is happening when we watch the news. We might see something happening in another place and feel horribly for the people that it's happening to. But it's hard to really feel connected to it when it's happening someplace that far off. It seems so disattached or detached from what's going on in our own lives. A whole city in China that you've never heard of before being in lockdown is tragic, but not necessarily consequential to how you're living your life. We have more pressing issues to deal with in our own lives on a daily basis. And besides, what what can you do about it anyway? What could you do about the city in China if you want to do anything at all? And then all of a sudden, here it is, on your doorstep, on my doorstep. Businesses, schools, borders, all shutting down within the scope of a week. And while it might feel sudden, we can't say the warning signs weren't there all along. We can wonder why we didn't listen to them more. And we can also wonder why many people still aren't, but we can't say they weren't there. Gone from our public consciousness are accounts of how many points are scored or wins are tallied, and they're replaced by accounts of how many respirators are left and how many hospital masks are needed, how many new cases have occurred and how many people have died. Also are the counts of what is the gap between what is needed to deal with this crisis and what we have. And it's in that gap that lies what's long been apparent to many, Our healthcare system, while in some ways the best in the world, is in many ways far behind. And that access to healthcare that does exist is unequal or unlimited based on where in society you find yourself. The dark joke going around the internet has been if you want to get tested for COVID-19, you really need to bring your IMDB page, your sports stats, or your investment portfolio as it seems that the connected are the only ones to get connected to these resources. Which brings us to today's podcast. And today's podcast might sound a little bit more academic than our previous podcast, and that's for some good reason. The first reason is that the guests we have on today's podcast are, are, as we say in Boston, wicked smart, very intelligent and accomplished professionals in the space of public health. The second reason is that the complexity of our system, as well as its inherent problems, are pretty significant, and it takes a lot to untangle and understand them, but at the same time, a lot of the origins of its inequality are pretty simple if we only look. And so today on Experience by Design podcast, we have Shelley White and Manakshi Verma Agarwal from the Simmons University Masters of Public Health program here in Boston. Both Shelley and Manakshi have a long career examining the issues of social inequality and health disparity when it comes to public health access and its outcomes. 
in our conversation. We do cover a lot of ground in a short period of time around the design of the healthcare system overall, how it has been historically designed in many ways to be unequal, and how it can and should be designed for the most marginalized populations and persons among us. And rather than this being a zero-sum game where those who win come at the expense of those who lose, we can decide to design for the most marginalized as a win for all of us. By taking in those marginalized voices, it actually improves the design outcomes for everybody involved. It's a timely conversation. It's an important conversation. As we look to not only how to deal with this current moment, but also we start to envision the moments we want to come after. Hope you enjoy the conversation. But thanks for both coming on for this podcast. And we have not had, Adam, I don't think we've had a situation where we've had two guests at the same time, have we? No, this, this is the first time. So we, we appreciate you experimenting with us. Um, even as your stocks are, are being sold, we um, <laughs> you know, still hanging out. <laughs> Have you found, I mean, Shelly, have you found that people um, suddenly find a value in sociology at times like this? Um, yeah, whereas, I, whereas other times no one values what it is that we do in any kind of way whatsoever. You know, I think so. I hope so. It's been interesting. This semester I'm teaching a sociology course called Intro to Transnationalism, and it's been mm really interesting, like the evolution of our dialogues in that space about thinking about, you know, theories of transnationalism, concepts of citizenship, of borders, of um, like identity and the building of nationalisms, including, you know, really toxic nationalisms um, and all of the inequities that are sort of layered into those systems of identity. So I think so. I see my, I mean, I, I will at least say in, in the classroom that I feel like students are really responding to the moment and, um, and thinking more deeply about these issues of inequity and the structures that are perpetuating them. Is it more so than they were before? You know, it's one of the things I've been talking about with my faculty, which for full disclosure, your husband is among them, is this idea of you can feel free to toss out anything you had in the syllabus and just jump into the moment right now because it demands, you know, people have questions and Mm -hmm. I don't know that we have answers, but at least we have perspective. We have theoretical frameworks. We have, Um, concepts that we can hopefully rely upon to give us a sense of what the hell is going on in the world at this moment. Mm. Yeah. And we've tried to create that, that opening as well, I think um, within our program, Minakshi and I are both part of a master public health program, which is really a cool space where we're taking, like we are very interdisciplinary myself as a sociologist. um, You know, we have folks who are trained in public health, but also folks with backgrounds in economics and political science and um, education and community organizing and just like an array of different disciplinary perspectives. And I think, um, so we're, we're sort of like drawing on all of those variety of, of perspectives and theories and, and, um, frameworks and then how we're adapting in the moment to create space for this. I hope we're doing it. I think we're really thinking about, you know, how humbling this is in terms of how it's impacting students' lives, students' everyday lives, and also people's bandwidth to like be in an intellectual community at this moment. It's, um, you know, everyone's like, even for our program, which is largely an online program, we're used to meeting in virtual community to do our learning. Um, 
that stays relatively stable. But what's shifting is like all of a sudden people are doing like triple roles of like homeschooling and parenting all day long at home, Um, you know, balancing new work scenarios of like some people still being on front lines and being called into pretty high risk situations and what that means for them in terms of what they're carrying home to those who've like are currently working at home, like in their bedroom so that spouses and partners and roommates can also function in their new work realities. And then I think just like the relative cutoff that we're all experiencing from community. So like the stressors are high and this is not a short-term situation. Um, So yeah, I think as faculty, as administrators of this program, we're really thinking about what it means to hold community through this and to, uh, and to create space for what is like somewhat of like a collective grieving and collective like processing moment. One of the things I just, I'd be interested in your comments and Manakshi's comments as well. I just wrote a a blog post on intersectionality and (laughs) COVID-19 and you, you know, it's, you know, the, for organizations primarily, understanding that we're not all experiencing this moment in the same way. So while we all are experiencing it at the same time, depending upon who we are, what our social class is, what our gender, our background, our marital status, our family status, we're exper- or if we're Asian American or not, right? Uh, if How we're experiencing this differently, even though we're experiencing it at the same time. And I, I guess that's not unusual for you all to talk about because public health is about that very thing. Yeah, Gary, if, um, I can step in on that. I, I really appreciate you bringing that up because, you know, in our program specifically, we look at health equity from an intersectional lens. So basically that means is that, you know, depending on the multiple marginalizations, this term was coined by um, a black feminist and scholar, Kimberly Crenshaw. And she said that, you know, the more marginalizations that you experience, the worse off your outcomes are. So um, especially looking at COVID-19, all of the inequities are starting to bubble up to the top, which have been, you know, fundamentally created through structural racism and other forms of oppression in our society. But now, you know, the spread of this um, virus is like, spreading through the cracks, like you wouldn't be able to believe because we haven't had a social safety net in reality for many of the people living in this country. So that's why, you know, I look at the example of my city, we have about 70,000 people, 40% um, are children who um, are children of color, their families are immigrants. And it took us a while to cancel the schools because we had to figure out a plan for their food security. So, you know, in a way, the addressing of the pandemic was harder to do because so much of the social um, support comes from what's happening at the schools. And so this is where those things intersect. And um, we're seeing that the people who are experiencing the most, um, the greatest impact of this are our frontline workers and also people who don't have access to paid leave or healthcare. So in that way, the intersections are really showing up. And I think that's a really important part of the conversation. No, I, I think that, that that's, um, I, I, that's a really great introduction to think about uh, the topics at hand in, you know, one of the, the pieces I'm, I'm really curious about, uh, it's funny, as, both as an anthropologist, but also just, you know, as a perspective of thinking about this as, as public health, right? And that as an intersectional space, um, it's, it's so interesting to contemplate for me, at least how, you know, public health inequities, as well as transnationalism and, and a virus that hops borders, you know, that the virus that has no borders, right? Um, how something like that, that, you know, again, doesn't have any borders, so clarifies and highlights the ones that we have built, right? Societally, 
um, because it just runs over them. And suddenly it's now this, you know, on, on a very crass way, um, it's become a middle class and upper class problem now too, like health, you know, and, that, and that it's like, it's sad to see that's when you kind of see politicians starting to do something, which is pathetic, right? But um, I, but like, it's interesting too, when uh, on some level you see these kinds of, you know, biologies in this case of virus too, that, that I, my hope is that it brings these conversations more forward, right? That we can talk about intersectionality, that we can talk about the right, like basically how this is, you know, systemic racism and systemic violence has, um, you know, attempted to push health inequities, you know, down the socioeconomic ladder, but then something like a virus pushes it back up. I guess I'm curious to think about, you know, in, in a broad sense too, um, um, you know, Manakshi, in your work as doing kind of programmatic work that you've both done in Bombay, India, as, as well as, as in the States, um, you know, I, I was reading that one of the, the projects you're working on was working at you know, like patients' rights and thinking about how do, how do, you know, health rights and patient rights get changed by focusing on these issues. And so I wonder if you could talk a little bit about that, because I'd love to reflect on what this might help us think about, you know, in the current situation, too. Yeah, absolutely. Um, when I was working in Bombay, uh, I was working with their municipal corporation. And, you know, Bombay is the financial capital of India. It has, um, you know, an exploding population that grows by 10,000 every day, even though it looks like there's no more space for any one person to join. And, um, and you know, I think at that time, we were really working to deeply um, reinforce this idea of patients' rights when they come into the hospital. It's a very different system from what we're used to here. Um, and really your social class and your you know, income or your wealth determines your quality of care very much like in this country as well. And um, what we were seeing was that patients, um, and I mean, I just see so many parallels with what we're doing here is that understanding our rights as patients there and um, for the patients who are coming into the community health centers there, did not understand um, and, and we're, not, we're just not aware of their rights or that they had the rights. And so the municipal corporation really did buy into this idea because they knew that the, you know, equity by design is a, is a superior principle. And if, if the patients begin to understand their rights, it actually got better for the, for the providers. It got better for the administrators as well. And so I think that that's the critical analysis that we try to bring through our program about equity is because, you know, um, it's kind of misunderstood as a zero sum game that like, if you get something, Adam, then I'll lose something. Or if Gary gets something, Shelly will lose something. But um, it's really, it's really not about that. I mean, it's about how can we understand our history? How can we understand those with the greatest marginalizations and then create, um, create a solution or create a design that actually is created for those with the most marginalizations and that'll work better for us. I'm sure both of you are familiar with curb cuts as an example. Um, the, the principle of universal design is a key part of that. The American Disabilities Act allowed people with disabilities to get curb cuts and we all benefit from them, whether it's a parent pushing a stroller or um, a person doing a delivery or all of the other various ways that's supposed to support folks. So even in this situation, where we are with COVID-19 right now, if we try to create our solution based on those who are the most marginalized, those with the least amount of days off, the, those with least amount of health care, um, those with the least ab ability to be able to take time off from their job, 
then our solution is going to look very different from sort of the band-aids that we've been putting on our society to try to, okay, we'll address racism today and sexism tomorrow. If it's not intersectional and it's not looking at those who are most marginalized, people of color, immigrants, undocumented immigrants, those who are earning less than minimum wage, those are who's, who are houseless, we're seeing all those inequities really emerge through all of those um, systems. One as you're talking there, I was starting to think that we we could live in a very empathetic moment right now, where people who are saying things like "What do you mean my hospitals don't have enough medical supplies?" and not understanding that from a middle class or upper class perspective, are coming to terms with the situation that people certain people deal with all the time, right? That the idea of you know medical shortages is not a new concept. Uh, but it's a new concept for some who are not used to having to deal with it. Food insecurity is not a new concept, but now it's a new concept for people who never had to deal with it before. And it's one of the things that as a sociologist, I, I think about is how do we make that thing stick? How do we let people connect the dots that, oh, the, you know that thing you're experiencing when you go into the uh, grocery store and there's no food on the shelves? That's what certain people deal with all the time. And to create this, this awareness and this connection to the larger lived experience of others. And I'm not necessarily being a sociologist, optimistic <laughs> that people are going to make that connection. So how do we get them or is there a way to get people to connect this, this unique experience they're having right now with the medical shortages and food shortages and, um, you know, uh, work shortages, how do we get them to connect that to the lived experience that some people have to deal with all the time so that it translates into a different kind of policy or to social change? Hmm. Yeah, I, I can say a bit and, and actually please jump in. I mean, I think that it's, you know, when you put this in perspective of the history of public health, what you realize is like as a nation, and you were speaking to this earlier, is that like once this touch those touches those who are already advantaged in society, all of a sudden they realize, right? And Adam, you were saying that about infectious disease kind of creates one of those moments of realization that we're all in it together. Like our, our health is inextricably linked to one another. Um, and I think we see that in these moments where of an infectious disease threat. But unfortunately, as a country that has moved so far away from a sense of the commons, right, where we've privatized water and land and air and like, um, you know, <laughs> taken away indigenous and native rights. And like our whole history is founded on um, exclusionary processes that are deeply racialized. And so, I, you know, these are histories that run really, really deep. And um, I, I agree, you know, not to, I'm generally an optimist, or at least I like to think of myself as a possibilist, Gary, but I agree well, that someone, like, someone needs to be, cause I'm, I'm absolutely not. If you relied <laughs> on me to have a sense of optimism. This would be a very, a very depressing show. I like the term well, possibilist. <laughs> I, well, I, I borrowed that from Hans Rosling, who is um, a, a pretty cool demographer who talks about um, basically the demographic transition and the fact that, like what it takes to go through the demographic transition and to get people to a space of of holistic well-being, right, as nations, is ensuring that we reduce like child mortality, that we take care of the basics of adequate nutrition and for all, right, but also recognizing that the entire society benefits when that happens. Hmm. So that, that idea of shared benefit is actually really like the foundations of public health as a whole, is that like you you actually can't really create 
or you shouldn't create exclusive systems because that degrades health for everyone in the system, even those that are advantaged. Mm-hmm. Right. And so I think public health carries a lot of lessons for us as to your question, Gary, of whether those will come through to people in this moment. I hope I'd like to believe, like, I think we're seeing the extremes of both those who are digging in and doing everything they can to protect themselves and others in this moment and creating like remarkable um, communities of like shared response um, in this moment in virtual ways and otherwise, um, as well as those who are really bunkering down to individualistic, like self-preservation. So I think, I think we're seeing both ends of that spectrum right now. Like the toilet paper, you mean the toilet paper, right? Mm -hmm. That people, there's a run on (laughs) toilet paper. As one example. Yes. And hoarding back to, you know, the world may go to hell, but I'm going to have my toilet paper if it does. So at least I got mine. (laughs) I heard a good reframe about the toilet paper was like, if you're worried about um, how people are hoarding toilet paper. Think about who's been hoarding the wealth in this country for all these years. <laughs> I was like, okay, yeah, that's me- okay. That's the metaphor, right? You know, <laughs> if, if the idea is hoarding, you know, toilet paper, then the idea is, you know, toilet paper is a metaphor for wealth. Yeah. And um, what, 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 I don't know what what the uh, equivalence of one role is in terms of dollars. Yeah. But I think the market will decide that at some point. Yeah. I'll just. I'd like to add to Shelley's point. Um, I, I I agree, and I think. It is an optimistic time, especially because, especially in our program, you know, we are one of the few public health programs that are being very explicit about the impact of structural racism and other forms of oppression on all outcomes, but specifically health outcomes. And we like this metaphor that, you know, structural racism is in the groundwater of society. So, you know, we can't just fix it away by starting a diversity program here and giving scholarships to poor kids from low income communities and all that coded language that we hear. And so if we truly want to address it, this is the moment because um, I don't know if you all follow Naomi Klein, but she's a reporter for The Intercept. And I've really been thinking about her work, because she talks about, she wrote this book called The Shock Doctrine, which I haven't read, but um, I've seen her speak. And she talks about how, um, she used this quote from Milton Friedman. He said, only a crisis, actual or perceived, produces real change. When that crisis occurs, the actions that are taken depend on the ideas that are lying around. And so I think I'm optimistic because this is a real moment because people are seeing that their healthcare isn't actually working for everyone. And this sort of piecemeal program that we have in this country for, you know, your ability to access certain tiers of healthcare based on your income or your job, which of course is racialized, um, mm-hmm. just isn't actually working for everyone. As, as Shelley said, you know, maternal mortality rates and infant mortality rates in our country are some of the worst in comparison to other developed as developed in quotes um, nations and that's a real bellwether for society you know and if we can't keep our mamas and our babies alive then we are really doing a disservice to the entire structure as it's constructed so I think it really does require an analysis that says let's look at the groundwater of how this society was actually built so changing the changing it by giving this group of people you know, food pickup today, um, and then tomorrow they can get, you know, access to live in a house for a week is just not, it's not working. And so I think that that's really like where we want to center the conversation of optimism is that this is a shocking moment, and we have a real opportunity to to make a shift. Otherwise, we know that the administration can take the ideas that have been lying around, like the payroll tax cut, or, you know, bailouts for big corporations and just put them through because it's a shocking time. And people are just so, um, so dysregulated that they aren't able to really focus on what what needs to shift. 
One of the things I think that's raised is, you know, you're talking about, you know, people, other people can't get access to healthcare. The people who have access to healthcare can't get access to healthcare. And, you know, there's a saying from sports, you know, don't, don't believe your own press clippings for so long. Speaking as the healthcare system, people have talked about United States is the greatest healthcare system in the world, even though, even though the metrics, the numbers, right, would would say otherwise. This is not opinion. This is scoreboard. You can look at a lot of different metrics, which you all know better than me because this is your space, that show the United States lags behind other countries, industrialized countries, in terms of healthcare outcomes. We are lagging behind undeveloped countries in terms of yeah. outcomes around this virus. I mean, I think I, I was like Senegal or Cameroon were like testing more people than we were. And, you know, it's, it's just, I think it's a, it's a shocking moment, but it shouldn't be, you know, that's one of the things about being an eternal pessimist is that I am not surprised. I'm, I have my mother to thank for my voice of doom and my fatalistic thinking, <laughs> but it does serve me well at points. Thank you very much, mom, because you're looking at this and saying, none of this is really surprising. I mean, it was mm. all there. It was there from a pandemic report that was provided that was gaming out a possible pandemic situation in you know 2017 um, or 2015 I should say or or even 17. All of this was there, and it goes to part of what it, you know experience design. How to get people to believe not what they want to be true, but what is actually true, and how to convince them from a policy position to look at what 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 the actual case is and not what they they hope to be the case. You know what I mean? Hmm. I know if that's a question or a rant, I guess it's both, but it's just, it's just frustrating for me to say, Oh, you know, that's surprising. Really? Is it? I don't know because you could count the number of respirators and you could count the number of hospital beds and you can count the impacts of a, of a plague and just math, you know, subtraction and addition. And that could kind of tell you we were going to be in a world of hurt. And, and here we are. I agree with the framing you just shared, Gary. I mean, it, it is remarkable. Like I've heard folks talk about the U.S. health system as one where um, like what we suffer from is just incredibly poor expectations of our system, right? Is like that we can be in 2020 and we're spending, you know, we've spent our spending as a proportion of GDP has hovered between like, you know, 17 and 18, sometimes up to like 20% of GDP that we're paying into health. And of that, we spend about a third on just pushing paperwork, just administration. And it's a reflection of the fact that we have the most, one of the most fragmented health systems of any industrialized country um, where, you know, we have about half of it that's being absorbed in the private sector through like employer-based insurance, which means it's also contingent and makes folks vulnerable intentionally. So like those are intentionally placed vulnerabilities in a system that's designed that way. Um, and then of course we have our public systems and nobody wants to talk about you know, you say Medicare for all and everybody labels it socialized medicine or you talk about universal health provision. And because of our individualistic orientation as a culture, like the response to that is harsh. And yet what you find is people then compelled to vote against their own self-interest. Um, so, um, I, I mean, it's just it's it's remarkable what, what we've accepted. And if you look at like the long 100 year history of attempts to create a universal health system, and the basis on which that could be resisted and sort of like the ethics that we call on in this society, it's, it's pretty frightening. So, yeah, I mean, we, we haven't designed a system that is there to provide the basics of health for everyone. We have designed a system that allows for a huge proportion of folks to go uninsured. And even though we passed the Affordable Care Act, like the only, the only palatable design there was one that honored 
a largely privatized health system. And like, but what folks won't talk about is that, for instance, like the VA is a great example of universal health that that exists within our own health system or take, you know, take something like Medicare. Like we actually do have the foundations for a rational health system, but I think we don't have the cultural appetite for it, which is, which is super unfortunate. I mean, so what, what, you know, in, in your perspective or experience, have you seen, are there any ways, tactics, you know, things that we might think about and how do we begin to, to change that appetite? You know, is it just by getting more enticing food, you know, um, <laughs> as it were? Uh, and because I think it's, it's really, it's interesting and a tough question. I mean, as this is a, a side example. So I did my, my PhD research in Peru working with indigenous farmers mm. on quinoa production. Um, and we mm. did it kind of as participatory design projects about what does it mean to design incentives to help, you know, or basically to see like, do, do farmers want to grow agrobiodiverse quinoa versus, you know, monocropped food for the market. And so it's an interesting scenario in which, Indigenous farmers, as you can imagine, in most most communities, most indigenous communities are the most vulnerable. Uh, they suffer from the highest rates of malnutrition in the country, particularly in the in the region of Puno, where where quinoa agrobiodiversity is strongest. And so it's, it's this like deep irony, right, of having the one of the richest foods in the world uh, that uh, has been actually socialized to be seen as food food for the poor. It's not a good food to eat um, for three hundred years. And it's slowly coming around mm-hmm. now because, again, like, you know, industrialized nations have said that it's suddenly this cool hip food to eat. Um, but what's interesting about this is that, like, so, you know, it's, it's weird, like, racism made the food bad and then racism was trying to make the food good, you know. And, like, and then indigenous mm-hmm. farmers are kind of caught on both sides of that. Uh, and so one of the one of the parts of the project I was, I was trying to figure out with, with farmers and with scientists and NGO workers was what does it mean to take indigenous knowledge and, and positionality around quinoa? Like, what is it, what has it been and meant to them? Um, both mm-hmm. like historically, as well as like, you know, pre-Columbian through the dealing with colonialism to contemporary racism, to the next idea that this might be the, you know, the food that we can send to Mars. <laughs> um, and watching this, this weird, this, you know, this food kind of trace across these, these things. And then like, it's really interesting to see a lot of community members and farmers begin to take on this new identity that they, that they themselves chose that it's like, we're now the guardians of the future. Mm-hmm. Which is a really interesting uh, and, and nice, you know, not everybody felt this way, but this is like a nice, like, you know, to see, uh, you know, this community that's traditionally just been marginalized begin to then say, well, actually, how do I take these pieces around me? I don't know if this is kind of shock doctrine but like take the pieces that are around us to deal with this health crisis um, of malnutrition in this case and uh, to find our way through like and to do better with that. And um, I don't know, it's, it's interesting too. I mean, that, sorry, the, the appetite question made me think of this, but just like, um, you know, it's kind of thinking about in the broad sense, what does it take, you mm. know, on a, on a either design level or a community level to sort of change those, those metrics or those ways of thinking so that we can actually create an appetite for doing good, right. Or doing more equitable good. Right. Yeah. Um, you know, it never happens evenly. Right. But it's just like, I don't know, is there anything come to mind or do you, you, you have some, what could we, what could we hope for? <laughs> I mean, I think that some of the shifts that have begin that have begun to happen because of COVID nineteen are just kind of revealing. Um, as this Slate article so um, aptly put, that America is a sham, and that like we're made up of these like l- rules and laws that actually 
just end up further marginalizing people. And the small example of that is that, um, you know, airlines were prohibiting more than three ounces of any liquid, and now they allow 12 ounces of hand sanitizer, which is a flammable liquid, you know, and so presumably not safe for that reason. But now because of COVID-19, it's suddenly been allowed. And um, that's like a simple one. And the the deeper one is, you know, Wi-Fi inequity and, you know, how, mm. you know, uh, communities of color have been racial, racially redlined out of Wi-Fi access so bad that New York City actually sued Verizon for inequitably uh, charging people of color way more for their Wi-Fi um, mm. and Internet access, which goes back, you know, if you don't look at it historically to see where the telephone poles went up, then, you know, we're missing the whole historical lens to it. So I think that some of the quick fixes they're trying to do right now are an indication that some of these things can change. And like Walmart has offered two weeks of paid leave to mm -hmm. its employers, which they've been fighting for for so many, you know, so I think, I think there's an opportunity, but also that, you know, they're kind of sliding these things through without having a real analysis because they're trying to do a short term fix. And I think it's on us to, you know, um, propose something that's largely liberatory in its approach and probably more radical than anyone has ever imagined for this country. And it means that, you know, um, Wi-Fi uh, telephone data did not need to be capped or, you know, um, we don't need to put limitations on SNAP benefits if you start to earn a little bit more than the income bracket. And mm -hmm. so what does that mean? Again, I think it requires us to have you know, wildly radical leaders, which we do have some right now who are willing to talk about the the Green New Deal, the other aspects of what is possible for us as a society. And then we have the stalwarts who are still holding still and saying we're going to bail out the corporations because that's the bread and butter of the society. So I think it depends on where we want to go with this and how hard we want to push sitting from our situations of advantage. And we have structural advantage right here. Um, how can we push to change that? And Shelly and I were just talking about the poor people's campaign, which is calling for a moral response to COVID. So, mm -hmm. you know, let's not just think of the economic response, but what's the moral response we have as a society. And they've been, you know, rallying the work of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. for years about how he was just on the cusp of uniting people over poverty versus, you know, us being delineated over racial lines. Hmm. So one of the things you mentioned, um, both Shelley and Menakshi is this issue of expectations and, and, and expectation setting. So one of the people I like to listen to on the radio is another sociologist by the name of Joe Madison. He's on Sirius XM Urban View in the mornings, and he talks about mm -hmm. cultural conditioning. And so when experience design, there's part of what we expect to happen in an, in an interaction with a company, a product, a good, a system, and what actually happens. Mm -hmm. And you can have really low expectations and your interaction with that thing meets those really low expectations. It doesn't make it doesn't make it a good experience. It just means it met your expectations. And like Ryanair is a perfect example of this. You don't expect, you know, or Spirit Air or, or any other like low budget airline or low budget hotel. You're not expecting a lot, so that you don't get a lot and it's not great. Doesn't really mean you had a bad experience. It just means that it met your expectations. And so we are culturally conditioned to have these really low expectations of our healthcare system, of these companies, like with the broadband issue you mentioned, you know, we were assured that if they, if people, if they didn't have these, these caps on, on Wi-Fi and data limits, the whole system was going to collapse. Turns out it didn't. We were assured that if we don't 
follow a broken windows theory of policing and we don't chuck every low level offender in the jail, the whole community is going to fall apart. And what are, what are police being told to do right now? Don't arrest people for low level offenses. We aren't going to, we're not going to put them in prison. We're going to release them. We're not going to prosecute. So we do have this, I, I know the article you're reading about this moment of where it's almost like the, you know, the blinds falling off of our eyes and going, Oh, hmm. you mean it didn't have to be that way. <laughs> and it could have been this other way. And so it's going to be interesting to see how and if those expectations shift and if they're able to shift back. Mm-hmm. If you can, if, if there's an attempt to say, no, you know, we, we, we gave you two weeks vacation, but that was only a temporary stopgap. Now we're going to take it back away again. Mm-hmm. And so the, and it actually goes back to really quick, this concept of the Overton window. I don't know if you've ever heard of the Overton window. Political scientists basically talked about how there's a range of policy options that are seen as being possible. And mm-hmm. that has shifted over the last 30 years away from, you know, uh, what would be called a more conservative point of view, such that the idea of Obamacare, which was the Heritage Foundation, right, was a conservative proposal, now is considered to be like a radical leftist thing. And mm-hmm. we, can't, we can't even consider, you know, single payer or Medicare for all, because that's just like, quote unquote, socialist, even though we have those systems in place. Mm-hmm. Uh-huh. And so it gets back into this shaping public perception and framing and messaging become a crucial part, I think, to sit, to getting policy conversations on the table and getting people engaged with them beyond rhetoric mm-hmm. and in substance as well. Mm-hmm. I can, I can just could add to that really quick is that, you know, Marshall Gans talks about storytelling and I think we, we have to get back to that idea of, telling the stories that are not told, telling those that are concealed. Um, You know, primarily lots, so much of movement work that started in this country has been started by black women, you know, trans women, indigenous people, and that work is often erased. And so I think in order to be truly intersectional and really understand who has been living at the margins of society, that means that, you know, if we design the program to work for transgender black women who are living in some of the poorest locations in this country and might also be undocumented, it's actually going to work better for us. It's going to work better for people who are more advantaged white people who, um, you know, uh, Jonathan Metzl wrote this book, Dying of Whiteness, and Shelley can speak to this better, but he just talks about how being white in this country is actually a risk factor now because of the same thing that she said about, you know, sort of wishing, like voting away social safety nets particularly even if you depend on those um, social safety nets. So there's a real framing issue. I agree. Like our stories need to be reframed and we need to tell those stories and we need to design our, you know, our reimagined um, framework around those stories because that will reveal what it's like to live on the margins of society. Because again, those people living on the margins are the ones who are protecting the country at this moment. And, you know, suddenly we're talking about how, who are the essential people? And so I, I, I think that this is an opportunity to reveal those stories and begin to talk about them and to elevate that in a way that can inform our design. Mm-hmm. Shelly, I don't know if you wanted to add anything about that. Yeah, no, I mean, yeah, thanks. I was just thinking actually of Metzl's book, yeah, Dying of Whiteness, and just the fact that I think, um, and it, it also draws to attention for me the ways that Kamara Jones talks about racism Right. So in our program, we, we talk about racism as a system of advantage, um, really acknowledging the ways that it was historically created and continues to be perpetuated to benefit um, white 
privilege or white advantage in society. Um, and Kamara, Dr. Kamara Jones, who's done a tremendous amount of work of really raising up the dialogue around racism as it connects to public health, in her definition of racism, really talks about how it degrades and really saps society of its full potential. And just acknowledging what it means when you exclude a, a majority of our population, the populations of color, um, to the advantage of whites, um, what that means in terms of the degradation of our society as a whole. And then I think with what Metzl has done to add to this dialogue um, is really point out how particularly low income white Americans have been compelled to vote against their own interest mm -hmm. on issues of like universal health care, on issues of like gun safety and control, on issues of reproductive rights. And the list goes on um, really out of racialized uh you know, stoked sentiments, which build on, again, like this long history of, of the ways that we've, um, you know, the kind of the coloniality on which our, our U.S. history is based, right, and, and continues to be perpetuated. So, and I think that that's where, you know, to think about the potential of sociology, especially the study of social movements, right, and, and what celebrates the principles of organizing, the concept of building a, a power base uh, within community um, and sort of thinking about, as Menakshi spoke to, the power of reframing. Like there's always going to be the dominant frames and we have to be able to like identify and name those, but then hopefully to use those. Um, and I think that in this age of like the digital age with social media and so forth, there's a lot more potential to possibly democratize the ways we can reframe the conversation and can recenter like those who have generated these incredible ideas. Um, and to name like the possibilities of, of decoloniality, like what does that look like? And I think actually in moments like this, we can talk about like, and there's some really good dialogue I think happening virtually at this time about like, is COVID-19 an opportunity for us to raise up this deeper historical structural analysis of like histories of colonialism and how that continues to show up in our current systems of neocolonialism or ongoing coloniality. Um, so I, I do think there's an opportunity to retell the story or to reframe the story and hopefully to invite people to understand that like, and it really brings me to, to, to the work of like Paulo Freire, who is like, you know, his conversations of like, we always live in a, in a moment where two realities face us, the possibility of humanization and also the very real possibility of dehumanization. And I think we're exactly at that crossroads of like, which will we choose? And recognizing that it should we choose to humanize, that the mutual benefits run deep and run broad. I actually, I, I actually said that yesterday, but I didn't quote him. I thought I created it. So that, that <laughs> Well, <laughs> oh, well, that's, gonna, you know, you, you ever have, did you ever have one of those situations where you're like, wow, I just said something really cool. And then someone says, yeah, so-and-so said that. And like, you're like, oh, there really are no new ideas. I guess I should just go home now and do something else. Paulo Freire, now, but now I'll sound smarter because I'll say, as Paulo Freire says, and that might make me you know, sound smarter. There it is, right? Like that's one of those, it's really interesting. I, I feel like. I don't know. One of the things I always like to share with my students is like having having a text or like a piece that you read regularly and return to like at least once a year, maybe every six months. And for me, like Pedagogy of the Oppressed and sure. MLK's Letter from a Birmingham Jail and like some of these pieces that like the wisdom is constant. And right. I think that that's one at the those are ones that at this moment really invite us to think about what urgency means. And those of us that have the luxury to opt out of urgency you know, drawing on the work of MLK. Um, and then also like from Freire, just really, um, I think pushing us to 
assume the agency that we can um, and to recognize like where agency has been depleted, um, you know, again, intentionally placed. And I know I keep using that language and should, should name who I should attribute that to as well. But like when we talk about defining inequities, we talk about, you know, outcomes in health that are unjust and unfair um, that are preventable, right? If, if we actually care to care to prevent those inequities. And one of the recent APHA, um, APHA is the American Public Health Association. One of the recent presidents, Tom Quaid said, they're also often intentionally placed. And I think what he did there was invited us to acknowledge that like how deeply health is political, like it is constantly politically constructed and reconstructed and therefore you know, like we know what the patterns are right like we can look at like the city of boston and look at the distribution of like even the mbta um and look at the differences and just by zip code of like life expectancy as deep as like 10 years difference just some blocks away um and you know so realizing that that is that is politically constructed and that these patterns and health com- outcomes are generational and intergenerational um, but acknowledging that number one, that uh, that is that is a political construct. It's something that we're constantly reconstructing. Um, then also invites us to understand that our work in health um, has to be political. Like we have to be training health professionals, future sociologists, future anthropologists, political scientists, all of right, all of our students. We have to be thinking about how we will engage the next generation to recognize that it's actually our responsibility to be engaged. Um, politically and otherwise in ways of organizing collectively around hopefully a different a different system, different experience. <laughs> I'll just add to that, Shelley, is that, you know, we've um, taken an explicit lens in our program to name structure, where structural racism is operating. And frankly, I'm done sharing data without the why. You know, in, in the public health field, we show data over and over again. These are the black women dying. These are the black babies dying, you know, blah, 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 over and over again. And we never talk about intergenerational impact of structural racism on the body. And I want to, you know, we're starting a movement to like really name that because, you know, we are not in a neutral position as public health practitioners, as sociologists, as political scientists. We have an opportunity to name the history that's impacting that data. And so I want to really call in all of the people who see themselves in that data. And so the greater burden is on people of color in this country. And we can say that, you know, as we talked about earlier, is that the rest of the population is doing horribly in terms of our health outcomes as well. So how do you see yourself in that data? And let's stop sharing data without saying the why, because that's deeply problematized. And it just goes back to people having this perception that race is not a social construct, that there's something biological about it, when in fact, it's a social construct. And yet the, you know, the impact of racism in this country has a very real impact on people's health and education and housing and job mobility and economic mobility. So we really want to name that because that's our power in the fields that we're in. The power of names, you know, um, you, you've got, you got me thinking, Shelly, I'm curious, you know, in, in your experience of working with HIV AIDS in, in Maine, you do some policy work there as well. Mm. Um, you know, cause I, I really, I really appreciated your, your thinking with Paulo Freire, a bit ago in terms of like, we are at the space where we may choose, you know, to humanize or to dehumanize. And, um, you know, the HIV epidemic, um, harkens to this, this question, right. You know, again, it came from again, LGBTQ lens, you know, and then has had, you know, racialized tones and class tones too, but I'm kind of curious, mm. you know, in, in your experience of working either in, in Maine and with that too, or like basically how have you seen that discourse change, um, you know, over the past, you know, few years or a few decades, 
And, and does it, does it give us anything to think about in terms of, obviously COVID is not the same kind of, um, epidemic, you know, we're in a, we're in a pandemic mm-hmm. state, but it seems like this, it operates differently, but I'm, I'm just kind of curious, like, is there anything we could learn from, from that work that may inform how we could, we could approach tomorrow? Mm, how much time do we have, Adam? <laughs> Seven <laughs> um, hours left. Part two. Thanks. Yeah, part two. <laughs> you know, do you mean how much I, time do we have like in our, in our world? Or, oh, I mean, there's that, that too. Might be like, you know, you know, <laughs> That's pending. Days, maybe. Two days, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So thanks for asking it. I mean, to me, like, I feel like the history of HIV AIDS is, is like literally the history of the human condition and, and teaches us so much about, um, Actually, like the way I like to talk about it is it's literally a story of how we've decided to answer the question of whose lives matter. Mm. So, you know, like if we go deeply into the history, like my work has brought me into to Southern Africa where I did some work in Lesotho, um, uh, a country that's completely landlocked by South Africa. It still continues to have the third highest prevalence in the world. Um, and when I arrived there in 2004, 2005 to help roll out like the first voluntary counseling and testing and some of the broader public health responses, um, 30% of adults were infected and 40% of young women. And, you know, it's like, this is to, Manakshi was talking about like how we have to bring an analysis, a deeper historical perspective of why that might be, right? Because of course it was at a time where people were um, racializing uh, across Africa, you know, sort of talking about the over-sexualized African, like all the frames that we like to say about the other, right? And so it's like a history of othering, like a textbook of that mm-hmm. in so many different ways. Um, and of course, if we actually name what happened historically, it's that populations were displaced for extractive purposes <laughs> under systems of colonialism and apartheid rule um, as families were disintegrated and like social cohesion was disrupted. Um, And so for the extraction of minerals and diamonds and other goods, like families were pulled apart. Um, And then, you know, all of the gender dynamics that were imposed through histories of colonialism are really salient in that history as well. Right. And then I was also there in 2004. And so here we were like two decades into the epidemic um, globally, where in the U.S. by 1995, we had rolled out triple combination therapy. Right. And what we saw was our death rates were cut in half within two years in the U.S. and cut down by 70% across the U.S. and Europe within a few years later, right? And so what we knew was that success was possible, and yet we were limiting who could get access to that. Hmm. And the very year that we rolled out triple combination therapy in response to HIV was the same year the WTO was created, the World Trade Organization, and we enshrined patent policies that would create, you know, 20 year patents on innovations that literally was a death sentence. Like we constructed that, we chose that as a global economy, right? We chose to to honor patents over people in essence. And of course there's this deep rationale of like, oh, you know, if if we allow um, the pharmaceutical companies to retain profit, they'll use that for deeper innovations. And there's really great work since that has, has shown that the profits from these um, number one, go into much more deeply into marketing than they do into R&D or research and development. And that if you look at like in the 2000s, the top 50 best-selling drugs in the U.S. market, 45 of them were produced by public entities, by universities, um, by public dollars, not, not by the private pharma. So like there's been a really good um, body of literature that has really revealed the dynamics behind patents. But I guess what I'll say from my work um, in HIV, both in Southern Africa and the U.S., is that 
you realize that it's a history where lives, um, like the ability to live, <laughs> the ability for people to survive in that epidemic was was constructed and it was constructed in a political economy where we've honored like the corporate entity um, to the expense of human survival, like time and again, over and again. And then to your point, Adam, about like the ways that this, the history of HIV AIDS has been racialized globally and in US history is, is again, really like a textbook of inequities, right? So even the fact that in the US in 1990, we passed the Ryan White Care Act, that was huge and, and a major success story. So I don't wanna discount that. And Ryan White was a really remarkable young man. Um, he passed away when he was 19 years old um, and he had been really deeply stigmatized um, in his experiences being kicked out of school and so forth once he was diagnosed as, after he was a hemophiliac. Um, but he was also like a white, young, middle-class boy. And so like, you know, a lot of the history on this, there's some really good sociology that sort of talks about the deviance that has been framed into the history of HIV AIDS, right? But he was like this palatable face of the epidemic, um, whereas he really wasn't the demographic of who was being, who was dying. In, in I do remember that it was, it was pretty, it was pretty shocking at the time because at the time it was, you know, GRIDS, it was gay related immune deficiency yeah. syndrome. And, uh, you know, a person who was not gay getting HIV really called mm -hmm. into question everyone's thinking around that. And I, I can't, can't remember how old I was, but I do remember Ryan White. And I do remember all the media coverage around it and shifting that narrative from it's not them. It's all of us who have to deal with this issue. And as I was just got done watching all the seasons of this TV show called the deuce, which is on HBO. Hmm. And I don't know if anybody's seen it, but it's fascinating because it gets into, especially the last season, you know, the rise of the AIDS epidemic and the lack of attention given to it by politicians, including Ed Koch, Ed Koch, you know, or Koch in um, New York yeah. and how, how a lot of mobilization was happening around that because it was just thought to be a gay disease uh -huh. and, it, and all the demonization that went along with that. And I mean, that's just been replicated recently with what's called the opioid crisis and what was the crack epidemic, right? I mean, everything is repeating in history in its in its way. And, and like our diagnosis, our, our treatment is determined by our diagnosis. Is that is this a is this determined on someone's race? Or is this determined on Oh, it's it's an addiction? It's not, you know, criminalizing a, a, a group of people um, has totally shifted the way that we're looking at that and so it's a very uh, american uh, maybe colonial practice to just say like we're gonna sort of codify this group of people as being this you know demonized in this way but when it happens to a group that's advantaged and it shouldn't be happening then it becomes a whole different treatment for it because the previous treatment was criminalization and incarceration and now it's deeply tied to, you know, go to a police station and tell them you need help, which I, I think is great. And I think if we had designed our treatment for crack and opioid addiction back in the 70s when we were criminalizing people for it, then it would have even worked better for the people who are getting addicted right now. So that's the whole point of this, like, equity as a design principle being more superior. And I, you, you make me think of something that I wanted to ask, because this has been a theory of mine. I have not heard it talked about even by Apollo Freire, so I think it's unique to me. I don't know for right. sure. But I, I have not mapped this. This is all anecdotal. But the states that are taking the COVID-19 situation, shelter in place, taking strong public action and social action, policy action measures, 
tend to be those that you would associate with quote unquote blue states. Those that have taken a much more casual approach to this are those that you would consider to be red states. Again, I haven't mapped it for all the states, but this is just kind of what I've been kind of taking a look at. And those same red states are the ones that have rejected uh, Medicaid expansion. Uh They tend to have poor social determinants of health anyway, in terms of just lived experience, you know, higher rates of obesity, Uh um, diabetes, you know, congestive heart failure, all that stuff. So for me, looking forward, and I'd be interested in hearing your reaction to this, it's going to be interesting to see how this thing manifests itself differently in different parts of the country based on the public policy and the social policy that those who live in those areas have by and large, not completely, but by and large elected people to be in positions to deliver on those things like no Medicaid expansion. And I know that's that's a complicated thing that we can get into voter suppression and all that, and we don't have time for that now. But I be, I'm going to be curious that you have in Florida everyone hanging out at the beach, or the mm-hmm. guy in Oklahoma, the mayor, the governor in Oklahoma, being like, "Yeah, go do like you know the go going out to dinner with my family," and you're like, "Really?" <laughs> I'm curious. You know, I wonder if you've thought about this in terms of a public policy issue of how this thing's going to spike or recede in different parts of the country at different rates based on the policies of those parts of the country? That's a good question. I think you made a pretty (laughs) sage prediction there, (laughs) Gary, about, you know, I mean, you know, we were talking earlier about comparing this or learning from the histories of like the HIV epidemic, which is, of course, a much more slow, slower moving phenomena, right? But what we're going to see is like fairly quick spikes, um, uh, with the epidemic curve of COVID-19. And you're right, like we've been, we've literally been in the window of possible responses for a few, for a few months now, actually, and certainly right. a few weeks quite acutely. And to see the spectrum of of political modeling of a response, right, the political will in response to this is like, is pretty disconcerting, like from, from those states that have, you know, have taken it lightly. Um, have allowed the spring breakers uh, to come into, again, like the oldest state in our country in terms of like thinking about vulnerability and and truly like the concept of like the anticipated loss of our elders, like as a society, Mm -hmm. what that means that we, that we're willing to accept that vulnerability for our own, for like at various levels of self-interest that people continue to exhibit is, is really astounding. Um, and yes, I think there is a pattern here like that, that you acknowledged in terms of if we look at the history of the Affordable Care Act and the states that most needed that Medicaid expansion and opted out, right? Like um, especially our southern states, which again goes into like the racialized histories of, of the most vul- of the more vulnerable states in terms of certain um, comorbidities or like health outcomes of higher incidence of diabetes and, and like other complications and so forth. So so yeah, I think there is there is certainly a pattern here. And then I think at the same time, as we were talking earlier about, you know, possibilist perspectives, like this moment has also raised the possibility of like paid sick leave on a national level under this administration, which is kind of an astounding twist, right? And even the fact right. that we're talking about honoring like testing for all, regardless of, um, you know, one's immigration um, status, uh, like at the, at, there's some like there's some interesting moments, I guess, or, or possibilities in this where some more what we would talk about as like progressive platforms are being entertained out of necessity, mm-hmm. out of right, necessity. Right. right. And should be a lesson um, to the broader possibilities of that just 
to have a more cohesive like system that allows all to live and thrive. And I'll just caution that we have this like red and blue trap, um, you know, that we sometimes, and, and I think in the Northeast and I've grown up here is mm-hmm. that this narrative that some of those things aren't applicable to us. But when I, I've worked with Racial Equity Institute and they've looked at this data across systems with lots of rigor and seen that, you know, for incarceration, Massachusetts is doing very close to places like Texas and, um, you know, for out of school suspensions or um, in school suspensions, we're very similar to other parts of the country who are not considered as progressive as us. And, you know, we have some of the highest, um, you know, intermortality rates for the kind of, especially in Massachusetts, considered this like modern um, center piece of medical innovation. Um, we have some of the highest rates of, of those, um, really, really horrible outcomes. And so, so it's like, to me, it's a yes. And like, yes, as Shelly said, and, and we've been talking about is this real opportunity for us to be radical and to not, uh, get into that. I do think some of the more progressive leaders are definitely making some of these decisions and, and it's really amazing to see that. And, and we have to honor that and also, you know, recognize that our history is also in each state is playing a deep role in how people are reacting Mm. to this crisis. Yeah. Yeah. I appreciate that that thought too, um, because you know I, I live in Boston now, but I'm I am from Texas, mm. and it, it's funny because you know I've, I've been living here for about ten years, and so you know this is up north is now home. Um, but uh, I, I you know simply recall too, yeah, you know when when I first come or, or I tell people still sometimes now that yeah. that's where I'm actually from, you know, and you know sometimes the the responses is like blatant as oh, but you're not dumb. You know, or, or much more subtle than that, you know, and, and like, but I, so I, I just, I really appreciate the point that like, actually one of the biggest traps we live in right now politically is this red blue, you know, that we think it, we like, we, we simplify it to that level. And I get because the human brain likes simple answers, you know, as, as much as we are capable of thinking complex, <laughs> we love to, redu- we, we love reductionism, you know, um, but I think that's a really powerful way to, to, you know, the, to flip it where in like, in the case of COVID-19, you know, it's like the even like in a very stupid sounding slogan way, right? You know, like COVID-19 has no no political colors yeah. on, like, and on who it will attack, right? However, right, like how it gets there and like basically what responses are is political, is racial, you know, is, is um, you know, is is kind of, as you said before, I love the idea about like this is, health is politically constructed, right? So we're seeing those politics kind of come out mm-hmm. regardless. Um, I don't know, that's not a question, but it's just, it's an, yeah. an interesting uh, framing that I think is really good to think about and, you know, one of my hopes out of, out of, in this scenario is that we might on some level, you know, yeah, begin to recognize that if we're seeing policy changes that seemed impossible, mm. just, just, you know, mm. last year, if not a few months ago, a few weeks ago, right. That, that if we're seeing things yeah. that was the Overton's window is shifting elsewhere, right. Mm. Um, mm. That there is like, we, we are seeing these possibilities and that, that is really quite interesting. Um, the small wins, I guess, right. Mm-hmm. You know, social movements, they move slowly, but they, they, they move powerly. And so. Um, you know, it's interesting to see these, these, the window shifting, I guess. Yeah. Yeah. I think too, I just wanted to pick up on this idea of like radical change because I totally agree. Like this is a moment for us to, to hopefully, um, propose like some radical shifts in our systems, right? The systems and structures that allow for these fissures that become so deeply accentuated in a moment of crisis, a moment of pandemic, Right. But like, I think we should also raise the fact that we live already in a radical society. Like it is radical that we have the highest child poverty rates Mm. of any industrialized country. It is radical that we live in a society that allows for infant mortality rates amongst black Americans. 
uh, to be as high as what we what we talk of as developed or excuse me, developing nations, right? Mm. It is radical that we have the highest uninsured rates of any industrialized country. It is radical that we have the levels of adult and elder hunger in mm-hmm. the society that are completely preventable in, a, in an economy of great abundance. Like it is radical that we allow like three billionaires to have more wealth than half of our nation. Like that's radical. Like we have to actually have to name that like the system is radically unjust and therefore like it needs radical shifts. But, you know, and I just say that because like when people in across the political spectrum hear about like radical social change, like there's this, there's this uh, quick appetite to move away from that or to dispel it as like deeply, you know, activist and wrong. And like, I don't know, there's just like a framing of it that is um, that, that makes it um, mm. unattainable. But actually, I think what we need, need to name as radical is like the, the level of injustice that we have allowed and that we tolerate and that we have some somehow an appetite for um, in, in this broader society that mm. is like has a time clock to it. Right. In terms of if we place this in context of of what we've done environmentally over time mm-hmm. to honor like profit or, um, you know, what that means for the future of our children and grandchildren, like um, that's radical that that we've allowed that we've allowed our society to arrive at a place of such deep inequities that we we've put our planet in peril and uh, that our broader survival, right. As like a humankind is, is in question. So it's kind of like, kind of like bring it all home because not, there's nothing that I enjoy more than sitting around with a bunch of social scientists <laughs> talking about how everything's horrible because we're good at it. And, and you know, that it's a skill that's evolved and developed through years of doing PhD programs. And mm. It's an important skill. But like, I think it was since like, you know, we've been citing people, I think Cornell West said something to the effect of mm. it's not enough to be, it's not enough to not be racist, you need to be anti-racist. So mm. if people were looking to be engaged, involved, if they listen to your, you know, both of your sage words and are like, yeah, you know what, this is pretty screwed up. In terms of designing a better system, in terms of getting involved and not just seeing on the sidelines, what are some practical um, short-term, long-term steps that we might leave people with that might give them a sense of direction around what it is that they could do, not just to be, you know, feel bad, but to take action to feel good. Mm. Mm. Yeah. And I, I actually really like the thing you're saying about feeling good. Um, there's a, an activist that we love um, named Adrian Marie Brown. And she says that we have to make this work pleasurable. Like we have to make it fun. We have to laugh with each other. Otherwise, no one's going to want to do it. So we've actually in our practice have incorporated different ways of building relationships. And the same um, person talks about, you know, instead of making your movement a while my a mile wide think of it going a mile deep so get deeper in relationship with each other which is hard thinking about social isolation but hey you know we have zoom we have other ways to communicate with each other but how do you get deeper in relationship with the people that you see that want to have these conversations with you i'm not talking about you know the as I hear white people talk about their uncles at Thanksgiving that they want to convince, those aren't the people that I'm talking about. I'm talking about the people who who have an opening, who are like, yeah, this is unfair, and I want to learn more about why. And for people of color, there's a real role in healing. There's a role in 
um, coming together with other ethnicities and coming into a place of healing from the trauma that is racism that has been structurally inflicted on multiple ethnic and racial groups across society over the history of this country. So I think one part is building relationships. That's a key thing that gets this movement work to really shift, you know, systems and structures the way they've been set up. The other thing I would say is that we have to stop um, personalizing the critique of systems. This is work that I've inherited from the Southern Jamaica Plain Health Center, which is um, which is a community-based health center who is an explicitly racial justice organization. And they're really trying to move the needle in terms of not just training people on understanding the principles of racism's impact on public health, but how can we as organizations begin to shift the way we're doing our work to reflect a racial justice lens, which focuses on equity and not diversity. So how do we critique systems? How can we critique higher education? We're in higher education. How can we simultaneously critique it and be tied into the shift that needs to happen in its organizational structures and culture? So I think it's largely, you know, not personalizing it and saying racism is like, you know, Gary being racist or Adam being, you know, it's not about individuals who are racist. In many ways, society can function without racist acts between individuals because our structures are set up to um, perpetuate racial inequity all day long, 24-7, right? So how can we critique structures? And then I would say also like in the a small win is um, to follow the organizations that are doing this work. So um, Race Forward is doing amazing work. They have you know, they have an online magazine called Color Lines where they're uplifting some of these stories that bring intersectionality into the conversation. And they're making very explicit statements about how racism is impacting, you know, everything we've talked about in relation to COVID-19. So follow those organizations, look at the um, agencies that are coming together, look at the movements that are coming together and start to follow them. Because as you talked about reframing, we have to begin to digest our information in that way. And this is the problem with algorithms and social media is that if you click like on one thing, you're going to see five things that are related to those things. But I think the intentional following and supporting of, of progressive organizations that are looking forward to this radical idea of, you know, single payer healthcare and, you know, decreasing food um, injustices in this country, understanding how we can reduce these inequities. So I would say those are the main things is that um, if you want to take it from that activist mode is to stop personalizing the critique of systems and then following the organizations that you think are doing amazing work and building relationships through that effort. Great, thanks. And Shelley, what do you what do you suggest building on that? Yeah, well, I totally agree with what Minakshi shared there. And um, I mean, to me, I think it's it's recognizing that actually, like the folks that want change in the system are more than those that are working to perpetuate the system mm. that's working as it is. Um, and I think we can feel fairly alienated in these times, and increasingly so as we sit in our small spaces on our computers and isolate, as we are required to do right now for public health and public safety, but actually like there's such a vibrancy of community online that's even growing with new innovations um, and new approaches. So like, um, I mean, I follow the work of inequality.org. I think it's really well um, proctored in terms of like uh, outlining the realities of like racialized capitalism and then thinking about what are the policy platforms and possibilities of new, new campaigns. Um, public Health Awakened is a, a fairly recent organization that came together 
to sort of look at how public health is being impacted, um, particularly over recent years. Um, some of the work like RICE's and the work they're doing uh, at the border or the Southern Border Communities Coalition, um, the Poor People's Campaign, as we mentioned earlier, and Dr. Kamara Jones's campaign against racism. Like, I mean, and I'm not, the list could go on, but I think the point is like, the issues that you care about, like find your community of who's working on it. And as Manakshi said, build relations with them um, and think about the world you want. I mean, I think um, what the history of social movements shows us is that social change is possible. It's not easy, right? Because when you're talking about a systemic overhaul, it's not going to happen overnight. But I think there's an invitation here for us to move beyond a charitable frame and into actually a deep justice frame. Um, and I think that as a society, like we are actually ironically one of the most philanthropic societies of industrialized nations. And that's important to acknowledge, but like charity that's a band-aid, it might feel good in the moment, but what we know is that that person's going to be hungry tomorrow or have need tomorrow, right? So like I think we have to challenge ourselves to think about what deeper systemic change could mean for a more just society. And then I think the last piece is, is like I've been finding myself in these times gravitating more and more to the more and more to the work of like feminist radical poets so folks like June Jordan and and sort of gathering inspiration from her work um as well as Adrian Rich someone who I've appreciated for some time and like maybe just to end with a quote that for me is really inspiring is that she says um my heart is moved by all i cannot save so much has been destroyed i have to cast my lot with those who age after age perversely, with no extraordinary power, reconstitute the world. And I think in these moments where we feel like I'm only one, like what difference can I make, is to realize that it just takes more of us knowing that there's other ones just like us who want to make that difference and to find that community, as Manakshi said, um, and to realize that it actually doesn't take extraordinary power. It just takes the commitment of coming together in community. And in dialogue with those who are most effective, like thinking, excuse me, those who are most affected, thinking about like what difference and what change do we want to see? And then therefore, step by step, how can we get there? That's great. And it actually reminds me of um, a, a much shorter quote, um, which I, I like to go back to quite a bit, a slogan on a different organization I belong to, which is let it begin with me. Mm. And just this idea of the change starts with you and you can the change that you affect and create can be greater than yourself, especially when directed towards others. But first start with you, as you both said, finding those organizations, getting involved and caring about the outcomes beyond your own life. So stop hoarding toilet paper, (laughs) (laughs) stop doing those things and, and look at the, even though we're socially isolated, I take that back. We're physically isolated. It Hmm. doesn't mean we have to be socially isolated. And to, and, to, and to extend that caring in this moment beyond just how it affects your own family and find those ways to have experience with others so that you can build that world that's going to come out of this because a new world will come out of it and we all can play a role in trying to figure out what that looks like. Mm-hmm. All right. Well, thanks. You, got, you, you, you both can go back to solving all of our problems now. We'll let you go. <laughs> really. <laughs> It is 4.30 on Friday. We're off the clock now. <laughs> hey, justice never sleeps, Manakshi. So I want, I want yeah, things I happening know. over the weekend. You know, tell yeah. those kids that they got to feed themselves. Yeah. and uh, That'll be a bigger social problem to, to try to solve. Mommy's busy. 
with saving people's lives, you know. <laughs> oh, no, even better. It's the kids that uh, actually I'm such a big proponent of youth activism. Yeah. They're, they're also where this lies, right? Like we got to follow their lead. Yeah. So if it gets out of the house, house, I'm in favor of that too. If they just yeah. ask me for things right now, that'd be fantastic. <laughs> thanks so much for joining us. Thanks for both. this opportunity yeah. to you both. Yeah, this was really terrific to be in dialogue with you. So great conversation. Really it. Thank you. Thanks so much for sticking around and joining us for the conversation today. We've been talking with Shelley White, who's an associate professor of public health and sociology and the program director of the Master of Public Health at Simmons College, and Minakshi Verma Agarwal, who's the assistant program director of the public health program at Simmons College. It's been a great conversation, so we want to thank them again for joining us. We hope that you got inspired to take some time to make a difference in whatever ways you can as this moment is going to require all of our work to get through it together. And we want to hear from you. If you have any questions or comments from today's conversation or just from past conversations, we love getting feedback from you. And you can reach out to us at feedback at experiencexdesign.com or you can find us on Twitter at This Anthro Life. Two places, one voice. And if you like our content and want to support more of what we do, check out our glow.fm link at experiencexdesign.com. We really appreciate your help in putting this together, and we have a lot of fun doing it. We're living in strange times right now, so we hope that you and yours are staying safe and healthy out there. Remember to wash your hands. And we don't know what's going to happen this next week, and we don't know what's going to hold for any of us. It's hard to say and even harder to predict. We do hope that no matter what happens, you're able to stay healthy and you're able to stay hopeful. We do know one thing's for sure, and that's we're going to see you again here next week on Experience by Design podcast. Until then, take care, everybody. Bye. For Experience by Design and This Anthro Life, I'm Adam Gamwell. We'll see you next time.